Hi, welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine in which we talk about the news of the Jews with a disturbing level of honesty. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and as usual, I am joined by Tablet colleagues, Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hello, Stephanie. And senior writer, Liel Leibovitz. Hello, hello. Hello. Later in the show, we'll be talking with best-selling author, Jewish author, Hilary Lifton, ghostwriter for Tori Spelling, and others, who has a new novel out. And in our final segment, The Gentile of the Week, we welcome Man About Town, window designer, Slate contributor, and Jew lover, Simon Dunin. A little news of the Jews. It was quite a week. From Tel Aviv to New York, such a painful week for the chosen people. Hard to know what we were chosen for exactly. In the West Bank, a Jewish terrorist settler set fire to a Palestinian home, incinerating an 18-month-old Arab boy, Ali Saad Dawabsha. A horrible crime, and we mourn his death. Then, some sicko stabbed six people at the gay pride parade in Jerusalem. 16-year-old Shira Bankel died from her wounds. We miss you, Shira. And Thursday night was the little-known holiday of Tuba Av, also known as Jewish Valentine's Day. In celebration, tablet writer Manish Tana, a Jew of African descent, relaunched his dating site Mosaic Matches for Jews of color and those who want to date them. So check it out, mosaicmatches.com. And Amy Schumer came out for gun control. There was a shooting at a screening of Trainwreck, and just the other day she said, these shootings have got to stop. I don't know how else to say it. I still love her despite them. Despite, despite her support for gun control. Yeah. In case you wondered, on Unorthodox, we're never going to miss a chance to work in an Amy Schumer reference. But let's start our discussion this week with Republicans, Jews, and the 2016 race. Mike Huckabee, who I think he now qualifies for the title perennial presidential candidate, right? Well, in that bunch he is. <laughs> like, he commented that Barack Obama is marching Israelis to the door of the oven in his nuclear deal with Iran. And Jews freaked out because we are sick and tired of everything being compared to Auschwitz. Liel... Yes, sir. Do the Republicans get Jews at all? Well, the Republicans not only get Jews, the Republicans have a Jew as a frontrunner. The Republicans have uh, the great carrier of the vaudeville tradition torch, (laughs) Donald Trump. I mean, think about it. There is no way for a billionaire from New York to carry any favor unless he does some sort of shtick. And the shtick that he chose was this classic fucking vaudeville. So like, oh, you're a loser. You're an idiot. Like this kind of like very body robust comedic tradition that, you know, is completely ours and recognizably ours. He's amazing. I mean, okay, as but a the comedian, hair is not ours. The hair Donald is Trump's hair. Like, I, do, I take yeah, no responsibility for that. You can't blame the Jews for everything. But it, this is actually kind of fun to watch. Like our comedians have become so... Um, you know, sort of deracinated. It's all this kind of like sophisticated... John Stewart. Collegiate observational humor. And here comes a man who does it Henny Youngman style. He's a Tumblr. You know? Yeah, he's, he's a Tumblr so from, from, from Grossingers. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's just, you watch the show, and like, I really pray that you'll be hearing this, this goes live on Thursday. I really pray that he will go on to this debate and do like a take my wife, please. Which, considering the latest revelations about him and his wife, <laughs> you know, that's, that's probably too soon of a joke. But uh, I think he gets... Uh, something very fundamental about our spirit. Uh, and, and the rest of them support politics that uh, many The rest Jews of them are just re- reflexively Christian Zionist. Instead of reflexively, let me say, uncomplicatedly. Uncomplicatedly Zionist. Yeah. Okay. Will anything get the Republicans above 30% of the Jewish vote, which seems to be their ceiling in every election? Like, they, they just can't get Jews to go Republican. Well, I think now is the time if they're going to take this stance against the Iran deal, right, without maybe the Holocaust imagery, they can sort of capitalize on, I think, a, a, a worried portion of American Jewry who believes that Obama isn't looking out for their best interests. So I think that now is the time, if only they do it right. Like, they're not doing it right. What about the Holocaust imagery? I mean, there I is... Hate it. It's... <laughs> 
it has to stop. Not everything is Auschwitz. In fact, nothing else is Auschwitz. Even Auschwitz is no Even- longer Auschwitz. <laughs> The, the problem is, is that I feel like these are like coded words, right? Like if someone, a Christian says, oh, it's like the ovens or Auschwitz, they think that they're sort of like signaling something to us, like a kind of like a wink, like this is really bad and I get how bad it is and I'm going to use the right. Holocaust so that you understand because apparently Jews don't understand anything that's not like right. it's put in context Jews, with the Holocaust. It's putting us in language we can understand. Yeah, like, it's yeah, like Jews, yeah. it's like, you know, when all your relatives were murdered. I just think we should just stop using them. Like I, find another way to articulate what you're trying Gentiles. to say. Do, do like, you know, Dachau. <laughs> Gentiles, There's no. seven other camps. Come on now with the Auschwitz. Be creative. Yeah, Sobibor. I mean, there was a <laughs> runaway attempt, but it's still good. I can't believe you went Sobibor. Yeah. All right. Let's turn to Berlin, which is hosting the Maccabia. Do you say Maccabia? Maccabia. Maccabia oh. Games in the stadium that Hitler built for the 1936 Olympics. Is this uh, a huge triumph of uh, German rehabilitation or is this an irony uh, unworthy of all of us. Well, first let's talk about the Maccabia games. The Maccabia games actually... are an irony unworthy of all of us. <laughs> and so, are, wait, wait. These... So tell people what the okay, Maccabia games so are. These are actually the European Maccabia games. And they were started in Prague in, I think, 1929 as a way for Jews to compete, like, <laughs> unfettered by anti-Semitism and to sort of, like, have a, a an athletic field on which to sort of, so to speak, to, to compete. And Do you, now... The, they were a chance for Jews to win medals because they couldn't win medals in real Olympics. Basically, you know, because everyone hated them, not because of right. any, you know, not because we're worse else. at but athletics. So now it's sort of like the place for, like, your teen tour boyfriend from Tenafly to, like, meet your home friends from Great Neck. Like, now it actually serves a very, very different purpose. But <laughs> Wait, because the... they start at... Like, we have to be clear for our not-in-the-know listeners, like... Like kids can go to the Maccabi, right? Yes. Like if you're a good youth basketball player, but you don't make the tra- the the normal travel team. You can team. make the normal travel team, but on over the summer you go you go to these. You go to Jew Olympics. Yes, and every four, every two years, I believe they're in Israel. So these are this is the off year, and they were trying to figure out where to do it. This is the European Games, and they chose Berlin. So yeah, it's happening in Berlin. Well, it's, when it's, it's happening right now as we speak. As we speak, Jews are competing in that state, or people with at least one Jewish grandparent, quarter yeah. Jews. <laughs> it's, a, it's like the birthright model. It, it is right. so hard for me not to afflict our listeners with a very bad German accent impersonation. But, you know, let us also remember that when they had it in Israel some years ago, remember that was this disaster in which they marched ceremoniously over a bridge into the stadium and the bridge collapsed and like two people died. <laughs> no. And so I think at some point they're like... um, Excuse me, <laughs> gentlemen, uh, you of the formerly Nazi persuasion. Could you do this in like Yaz at the big infrastructure show and a lot of people marching on bridges? Yes, this is something we Germans do. do bridges. Uh, Germans do Germans parades. Do it, do... <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Let's let's let them handle it. I find the whole thing a little embarrassing. Not the German aspect. I want to get back to the Maccabia games. I mean, the fact that people with one Jewish grandparent can it's it's like the gay games. I mean, right? We're going to have... But I think Are it's there also gay games? a way... There, you don't know about the gay games? I do not know about Yeah, the they're games. gay Olympics. Oh. And it's... There is... I know you're sort of harping on this, like, not good enough to compete in the regular ones, but I think there's, like, a sense of pride in, in going to the Maccabia games, if you figure out how to pronounce it. Yeah. But, like, you, you get to go to Israel every few years. You you know, you, it, it's just another competition for, like, young kids Plus support who any... are hyper-athletic, like, hi- just, like, pushed on these tracks. I think it's, like... Yeah, you do the junior national championships, and then you go to the Maccabia Games. Right. You put it all on your college resume, and, and you're you should great. support any opportunity for young Jews to get laid, no matter. What. I think it is also a dating scene. Right? Oh, absolutely right. All right, so the New York City Department of Education has announced it's going to investigate three dozen Orthodox yeshivas, primarily in Brooklyn and Queens, on the suspicion that they don't give adequate instruction in secular subjects. This was in response to a letter of complaint from former students and parents who were upset that kids graduated unable to fill out even their welfare forms in English. That actually was in the article. They can't even fill out a welfare form. 
Should the city be investigating Orthodox yeshivas that I would grant don't give proper educations in secular subjects? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to say, like, these aren't your Ramazes or your Solomon Schechters. These are really... Those are the, really, good, those are the good ones. No, those are kind of like the fancy modern Orthodox ones where you're getting your right. education and you can go on to, like, pen and be totally fine. Um, you're probably over-prepared. But these are sort of these some less regulated, I think, um, schools in which most of the day is in Yiddish and Hebrew. And you have about, I think, an hour and a half throughout the week or uh, of English and math and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it's that, like these are deep Jewish schools. The boys are mostly in Talmud. And, you know, they get like a little algebra. And it's like it's former students sort of saying, like, I went to college. There's some guy who's leading the charge is sort of like I went to college and couldn't do anything because I didn't understand what a molecule was. And like, I actually still don't really understand what a molecule is. (laughs) But and I went to public school and I. I disagree. I think it's okay if there are little secessionary school systems within our country that do a different thing. I think that's part of the grandeur of America is that like Amish kids don't really know calculus and and their English may be dodgy because they're going to Amish schools where they speak only Pennsylvania Dutch. And like, isn't that what we were founded for? Is that so people could come to these shores and set up their own ridiculous school systems? As religiously crazy as you'd like. As religiously crazy as you want. And I mean, isn't it kind of beautiful that there are little teenagers in Brooklyn who speak fluent Yiddish? I totally agree. Yeah, but they barely speak English, and so you're well. Sort so of, what? There are lots of Cubans so, in Miami you know, who barely speak that's English. That's true. That's true. But I mean, so the idea most that... of the people we watch on reality television, and we pay them money. Not that much money. I think the sort of the weird irony is that boys are a lot worse off than girls because girls in these schools aren't allowed to study Talmud, which is what the bulk of the day for boys is spent doing. So girls actually get like almost fifty-fifty, or probably l- less religious, more secular, and they're actually fine. But, of course, they are sort of the ones who are expected to hold jobs outside the house because these right. men that these schools are breeding are just sort of studying Talmud all day. Plus, you know, there's, there's kind of a larger educational question here. So um, in Israel and, and most of Europe, when you go to university, your, your, your bachelor's degree, so to speak, is already in the profession that you're going to say. You don't do general education and then say right, law you go school. Straight to you go straight to medical training because, for college. Right, the idea law. is like you want to be a lawyer, do this. I think this is along similar lines. I mean, general four-year college is definitely failing us. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to sort of like look at that and come to that conclusion. What's wrong with saying to someone, it's like, are you going to spend your life in the yeshiva? Great. Well, then Yiddish and Talmud are the two things that you should absolutely be focusing your time on. Yeah. This is, I think, a p- sort of a part of a crackdown on religious education, specifically Jewish schools. I mean, if part of like de Blasio's voucher, like all this charter school stuff, it's a lot right. of it is going after schools that are getting public funding. And like, I understand why you'd be mad if these schools are getting public funding and they're not teaching what they're supposed to be teaching to prepare students for, like, a life in America. But um, but at the same time, you're beholden to a, a deeply corrupt, inept system that's really not teaching anything that much better. You mean the public schools? I, I do, indeed. All right, time to turn to our first guest, our Jewish guest of the week, Hillary Lifton ghostwriter of Storytelling by Tori Spelling, uh, and as well as memoirs by Miley Cyrus, Mackenzie Phillips, and who, who else, Hillary? Who else have you written books for? Uh, Tatum O'Neill. Um, and, and to say I've written books for them is a little bit of an... Uh, okay, we're going to get to that relationship. <laughs> but you have a new novel out. It's called Movie Star by Lizzie Pepper. I read it. It was trashily wonderful and wonderfully trashy. I mean, I read it in about nine hours. It was <laughs> while ignoring my wife and children. I really, I mean that as the highest compliment. Um, so before we get to your novel, 
what what do you do for these people? Is it correct to call you a ghostwriter? Are you a collaborator? Are you a therapist? I'm officially a collaborator, but I prefer to call myself a ghostwriter just because I think it's a um, more intriguing title. Um, but what we do is truly collaborations. It's really their story, and I sit down with them and interview them for hours on end and try to channel their voices and produce the book that they want to write. So it's really working with somebody who has plenty of stories to tell but has never written a book before, and I've done it a a lot of times now. Something that makes these books, and I think what you do um, as part of them, so important right now is that we live in this, like, oversaturated time where we know everything. We think we know everything about these celebrities. They have no privacy. They can't go anywhere without us harassing them and their children, and we read about it, like, happily at the nail salon. So do you feel sort of a sense of protection over these people whose stories you are telling sort of honestly and truthfully? Absolutely. I think that uh, that comes up a lot in Movie Star by Lizzie Pepper. But um, the, the, it was, it's really tough to watch the invasion of privacy. And there's this tension between the celebrities wanting to take control of that, wanting to feel known, managing their Twitter accounts, being out there and having to be out there for the job and then feeling absolutely unknown at the same time. So their privacy is invaded, but the result isn't any kind of intimacy. It's just um, exposure and violation. And so I think one of the opportunities they have when they write a book is to actually be um, personal in long form. The new novel, Movie Star by Lizzie Pepper, um, I mean, let's be honest, right? It's about Katie Holmes and Tom Cruise, right? Well, it's not about any particular celebrity. <laughs> okay, but d- did you... There's a lawyer sitting right by <laughs> right. her. You are not to mention Scientology. Did, did... It's called One Cell. It's something completely different. Uh, did the book involve... Did the research for the book involve any reading about any major superstars involved with creepy religions? I researched the book by reading the tabloids the way we all do. Uh, there is a cult in the book, and it's a cult that I made up. It's called One Cell. It's a small... Los Angeles-based cult that, you know, is a mind-body cult. And the reason I wanted the cult in the book is really as sort of a third party in this marriage. Lizzie Pepper, my heroine, is a um, struggling indie actress, and she falls in love with an A-list megastar and is swept up into this Cinderella wedding. But what I really wanted to talk about was marriage, and I'm using this um, story of celebrity and, you know, these sort of tropes of celebrity life to kind of, I hope, expose some stuff about not just celebrity in Hollywood, but how marriages play out and how not knowing the person and kind of banking on this um, Prince Charming can land you in a mystery land where, where there's some unexpected surprises. The, the cult I think that we have a question. You know, there are these cults. It's sort of a Hollywood thing. And sitting back in our living rooms, we kind of wonder, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody get engaged with it? Why would people who seem successful and like they could spend their time doing anything in the world, why would they spend time in these cults? And I tried to invent a cult that would kind of answer that question. I think Scientology improves their acting. I'm not an expert on Scientology. <laughs> so you're doing like a real mitzvah because you are normalizing and humanizing these people who really have no way else to do it. And I, I love that because, you know, as someone who does like to read tabloids but really, really feels icky about it, it feels like somehow more pure to just sort of go to the source. And yeah, you are I, translating that source. So thank I you. I mean, I don't <laughs> think I'm doing, you know, the 
greatest charity work in the world. But I think I do. I think when we read those gossip magazines, we feel this guilty pleasure because we feel like we're exploiting people. And by doing a faux celebrity memoir, I kind of, I mean, the joke I make is that no celebrities were harmed in the writing of this book, you know, that I allow us to indulge that curiosity without actually, you know, pulling open somebody's door that they're trying to pull close. So last question, how does your Judaism affect your ghostwriting? That (laughs) is kind of a trick question. It's a question I should start asking myself. I think, um, you know, there's a part of it that's just, uh, and I, you, you'll be better at telling me whether this is, you know, Jewish at its core, but this curiosity and desire to know people and know the workings of the mind, I think is traditionally Jewish, you know, that sort of Freudian therapy, let's understand the roots of everything we do idea um, really comes to play. I really want to know um, people and their hearts and why they make the choices they make. And to me, that feels Jewish. You know, you can tell me if it really is because I don't consider I think myself that's any imp- kind of expert. <laughs> I think that's important. But more important is that Tori Spelling could not have had a Gentile ghostwriter. <laughs> that's for sure. I think that's for sure. Uh, Hillary Lifton, thank you so much. Good luck with Movie Star by Lizzie Pepper. I read it on the beach in New Jersey. It was amazing. Thank you so much. Hillary Lifton joined us from her phone in the much earlier West Coast time zone of Los Angeles. One of the regular features on the show is our Gentile of the Week, where we invite on the show somebody who is not at all of the Jewish persuasion. And we have found somebody who is very, very Gentile, though he would he, he looks he looks horrified. He wants he aspires to a certain level of, of Yiddishkeit in him. And we're going to we're going to suss him out about that. It's Simon Dunan, who is the creative ambassador ambassador at large at large for Barney's, a writer for Slate and a general a flaneur, a man about town. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for having me. Um, Stephanie was over the moon with excitement when she heard that you were going to be on the show. I'm trying to play it cool, but thanks for uh, throwing me under the bus. Yeah, I'm really excited about this because you've written about, you know, you're married to Jonathan Adler, who is very much a nice Jewish boy, the the ceramicist and retailer. Um, yeah, I mean, you've sort of, in addition to, you know, the Barney's windows and the books and the articles, all of which are amazing, you've sort of done something very cool in embracing a sort of much maligned word, uh, shiksa and the sort of male version, shagets, which is a lot less catchy. And you've referred to yourself as a shiksa before. And I love that. Well, I think um, if I can tell you a little bit about my background. Um... Please, please do. <laughs> um, so, yes, my mom, first of all, always claimed that, that she was one of the part of one of the lost tribes of Israel. She grew up in Northern Ireland in rural sort of poverty, but she looked very Jewish, beyond, more Jewish than any of you. And she claimed that they, her family was one of the lost tribes of Israel. And I've seen like rabbis get on the bus and pay her bus fare. And she had a lot of Jewish friends. And she really wasn't like any of the other women in the street, in our street. In our street, the the women were sort of like um, working class versions of the Queen of England, you know, with a cardigan and that little hairdo. And my mom was always done up. She was always, despite being from a poor background, always interested in in the transformative power of clothing, which is something I associate with Jewish women. Is that crazy of me? No. I, like, I mean, I, I don't think it's crazy. I'm just thinking of my wife who refuses to shop. I have to buy her underwear for her. So she's in my... not Jewish. <laughs> 
she's she's been accused of uh, of of as much. But I think it's the aspirational power of clothes for Jews of a certain era where you wanted to look like these wealthy waspy women, right? Like you wanted to fit in, and one way to do so, sort of easily, if you had the means, was to sort of make yourself look good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and cut to then. I went to when I was at school. I, you know, it's 1968. I identified as an atheist, so I decided I wasn't going to go to chapel every morning. So I'm in a room with all the Jewish boys, and um, they're all my friends. They were fun. They were interesting clothes, and. I was already also identifying gay in my head. So I was part of a marginalized group. They were marginalized. So I had sort of a um, porous, shall we say, relationship with the, the Jews of the world. And then Johnny and I had a Jewish wedding. So, yeah, I do feel connected. Oh, my God, I forgot the, the main thing. Through fashion and the garment industry, right. every job I ever got was some mitzvah given <laughs> by a Jewish, a Jewish person. I mean, you know, my first job in the little department store in the town where we grew up was that the department store was Jewish owned. Like, and I was just amazed that these people would employ me because I was so feral and so useless. <laughs> and any every job I ever had, whether it was, you know, working at Maxfield in L.A., these were incredible. The people were always taking a leap of faith and giving me a job because I was so feral. My job at Barney's, I was not really qualified for that job, but these the Pressman family gave me this great opportunity. So I am eternally grateful to Jewish people. It was mitzvah after mitzvah. I'm a mitzvah recipient. You're welcome. But I, I feel like this tradition is, is sort of just in general, the tradition of kind of, you know, keeping up appearances is, is fading. I, I want to ask you a question. Says you and your big I want, baggy that's shirt. I, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to be a thousand percent honest, brutally honest. C- could you do that? For me? I'd love to. Look at me. Look at me right now. I'm wearing. I'm. I'm overweight. I'm not shaved. I'm wearing a ratty T-shirt and and ragged jeans. But it's jeans. like an ironic. When you see t-shirt. someone like me in the street, are you thoroughly disgusted? No. And I'll tell you a little story. Years ago, I got a call. We want you to audition for um, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. It's a new show <laughs> where all these gay men fly around making people over. And I was like, all right. And I thought maybe they've not read anything I've ever written about clothing because I've always said. Wear whatever the fuck you want. Fashion <laughs> is about self-expression. The most important thing is to look like yourself. You know, there are. It's all subjective, so there are no rules, right? That's always been my. I'm going to hug you. So when this anyway, is over. that's exactly yeah, the way we I all feel. are. We're all they hug all. You. Uh, they asked me to go for this audition. They show me pictures of overweight guys in Metallica t-shirts <laughs> with mullets, and they're like, "What would you do with him?" And I said, "Nothing," because he looks like himself. Well. You know, I don't have that. I guess that is a gay impulse to take people and want to cut their hair and make them look sort of spiffy, quasi-gay. I know I don't have that. Maybe I'm not a helpful gay. I'm not a helpful gay. Not a real Jew, not a helpful gay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's nowhere. going on here. Yeah. I, when I look at you, I think there's a guy who knows who he is. You've got this hilarious T-shirt on, Pax I Peritiranis, what's that mean? Uh, peace through tyranny. <laughs> and it's a transformer. And it's a, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a Decepticon. It's a de- <laughs> yeah. You look to me like somebody who knows who they are. I'm going to play this tape back to my and you, wife. And you, I was going to say, you totally landed Every a hot morning. wife. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. So, so you, w- do you have any questions for us? I mean, you're married to a, yes. Ju- you're married to a Jewish <laughs> boy, so you have an in-house expert, but we're, we're really, like, we're paid we're paid experts. I do have questions. First one is, um, whenever I meet a wonderful group of 
of Jewish people, I always try to get more Yiddish from them because I have an encyclopedic knowledge of Yiddish, but it can always get more encyclopedic. Like I just learned for putz, you mm -hmm. know, like it's your hair or like for putz, right? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, so I want new words that I can use because I always throw Yiddish into my writing because I think it's an incredibly expressive. All right. Do you, I think you know that. Do you know Ungapachka? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know that one. <laughs> for clamped. I mean, I'm in talking about yes. You know yeah. Shagitz, the male version of Shiksa? Yeah. yeah. What um, do we got I, for him? One of my favorites is Miskite. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. An ugly person. Yeah. yeah. It's a noun, you know. Like, yeah. she's a real Miskite. <laughs> the adjective is Misk. Jonathan will sometimes say, she or he is a real Miskite's Miskite. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Johnny and I had a Jewish wedding. And uh, I wrote a column for The Observer years ago about having a Jewish wedding, what was involved, and did it as if I was... A shagate, what is it? Shagate. Shagate. Oh, and it means worm. It means like vermin. Yeah, it does. <laughs> what does shiksa mean? I think the same. We're, oh, yes. So I wrote this article for The Observer, and I actually went to my doctor, and I said, I'm writing this theoretical piece. And uh, I did the cake, the, the caterer, the blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, adult circumcision, what's it like? Should I, shouldn't I? And he said, under no circumstances, it's the most painful thing known to man. Did you know that? Uh, I could have uh, guessed. I could have surmised, <laughs> you know. You've never actually entertained the thought. Um, I've never seriously entertained the thought of circumcision. It was a theoretical question. If you're going to get graphic, I don't have an enormous problem in that department with foreskin, I mean. Oh, God, this have, is having no, gone is, all this nasty, is, This isn't is it? incredible. You have a dainty little, it, you have one, but it's not obtrusive. So you, you, yes, even it's in that department, it's not, <laughs> even in that it department, you pass be. as Jewish. I mean, I it's do. completely meant to be. I do. Well, then that's amazing. It doesn't need to be for no. puts okay. in any way. Or Ungapachka. <laughs> Back in the days of the personal ads, you could go either way. You yeah. Could, they liked Arthur or Martha, Boris, Doris, like. Shimon, if I may. Yeah. You're going to come back on our show because you work in this building and we've decided. But next time you're coming on as the Jew. You're okay. ours. Okay. Yeah, I think we've, we've miscast. Will you come back as our guest Jew sometime? I'd love to. All right. Thank you so much. Now it's time for our prayers of the week. Liel, what do you have for us? Well, dear Lord, um, this is not a prayer. This is this is a, a note of gratitude. Uh, thank you, dear Lord, for Simon Doonan who has now given me enough confidence uh, to never wear anything but these ratty t-shirts ever again for as long as I live. You be you. Stephanie Butnick. I have a prayer. Um, my prayer is that Swedish pop singer Tove Lowe, whose first name is Tove, um, and her stage name is Lowe because she loves lynxes, which in Swedish the, the singular is Lowe, discovers some secret Israeli roots and that we can claim her and write about her. Tov lo means good no in Israeli in Hebrew. In Israeli. In Israeli. In Israeli. Okay, and that that segues the language. That segues into my prayer, which is that we might bring back the word Jewish. Everyone knows that Jewish is coming back. There are still some holdouts. They're the same people who don't want to say actress. Um, my prayer is that they all go away and that we reclaim our feminine nouns. Jewesses are the best. But what about Japs? That's for another conversation. Hey, if you have thoughts, comments, praise, mazel tovs, whatever, send them to unorthodox at tabletmag.com, or you can find us all on Twitter. We, we tweet with the best of them. Uh, thank you to Jonathan Dranoff from Little Rock, Arkansas, who sent in a really nice note about how much he loves the show. 
Our podcast is produced by Julie Subrin with help from Sarah Ivry, rabbinic supervision by all of you out there, because in Judaism, you don't need to be ordained to be a rabbi. Our website is tabletmag.com. Our music is by Golem. Super big Yasher Koach to Laura Mayer and Henry Malofsky and all the other folks at Panoply for helping us pull this show together. Join us next week on Unorthodox. Unorthodox.